0: To another episode of America's Constitution, I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akhil. Hey, Andy. Great to be with you again. Thank you. And I think both of us have cleaned off our uh, our jaws from last time when we landed a few haymakers um, on our discussion of, <laughs> of uh, Supreme Court succession. Um, and uh, and now we're back to that was fun. Yes, um, and of course. To be continued, because um, the issue the issue remains in front of us at this moment. Um, the issue of Supreme Court replenishment at some point, when Justice Breyer at some point presumably
1: uh, decides that he's going to uh, step down again, presumably conditional upon contingent upon the uh, the uh, confirmation of his successor.
0: And you know, it's, it's actually you know from a personal point of view. Uh, you know he's a he's a healthy guy and uh and and his age is looking younger and younger to me with each year so well
1: you're a physician, so you actually have sometimes explained to me a conditional life expectancy um, uh, once you're at a certain um, you've reached a certain age you know what's the what are what are your actuarial statistics
0: correct and uh you know if we really want to you know be ghoulish and de Dehumanizing to uh, to Justice Pryor. you know he has an actuarial age of a, a little bit more than seven years, you know at this point. Um, but of course, that's an and by average. the way, this was why
1: I don't like life tenure so much as eighteen years. Back to our earlier episode, precisely so that we don't have to have these ghoulish conversations when trying to have a serious discussion of the court. That was one of the many reasons I identified for moving away from. Uh, a pure life tenure model toward an idea of basically 18 years of active service on the court, followed by senior status.
0: And just as a reminder, uh, Professor Amara will be on uh, testifying before uh, the, if you will, the Biden commission um, uh, later this month. And I believe it will be viewable on, on C-SPAN. Is that right? I, I presume so. Mm-hmm. So returning to our discussion of the uh the Supreme Court justices and their influences and backgrounds and great decisions and so forth um you know, we started with the three most senior and of course uh the the our seniority is is a matter of formality because the chief justice is actually not the most senior in terms of service time but rather he's uh senior by convention um and uh, so we discussed the first three, and now we're on to the next three. And this, uh, you know, there was a dividing line based on how long our podcast is, but there's also a, a dividing line of sorts in terms of the, the comedy of confirmation, shall we say. Um, would you like to discuss that, Akil? Uh,
1: well, as we, we discussed before, uh, Stephen Breyer was confirmed in a love fest. Um, and uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, was confirmed without a lot of nastiness. Now, the Thomas confirmation, our audience will remember, was uh, very fraught, very contentious, but our audience will also remember it was the only one where a president of one party uh, confronted a... um, Senate controlled by the other party, and yet the nomination went through. Um, now, uh, beginning with Justice Alito, uh, the the most senior of of the remaining six, um, we go back to um, unified government. Um, the the ones who have succeeded um, were nominated and confirmed by presidents of the same party. You remember, Garland would have been an exception to that, but that didn't happen. Um, so now we're talking about unified um, uh, government confirmations. And yet, um, uh, there's been some uh, nastiness um, for almost all of them, uh, um, not as much uh, for justices Kagan and Sotomayor, um, who will talk about um, uh, over the next uh, uh, couple of uh, 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 who will actually talk about excuse me, today. Um, but um, the Alito confirmation was not pleasant um, at certain points. Um, uh, our audience may remember that uh, his wife Martha Ann, actually, in the audience at one point burst into tears. Uh, when uh, someone asked him uh, basically, "Are you a racist? Are you a bigot?" Um, so um, there are, uh, uh, So th- we are in a new era um, in which even when the p- president's party controls the Senate, um, the folks in the Senate minority are um, not uh, playing a, a pat cake.
0: And do you think that's because there's an expectation that they're going to defeat the nomination, or do you believe it's because they, there's a need to pander to the base of of that party?
1: I think it's the second.
0: So, in other words, politically, it may, so it may not be effective, uh, and a, a tactic that's even, you know, felt that is likely to be effective in terms of, uh, you know, torpedoing the nomination. Um, but rather it's, it's more of a uh, of a show. Um, and not only is it sometimes not effective, one might
1: ser- uh, conjecture that, that it might actually backfire. It, it might make the situation worse. Uh, Machiavelli says if you strike the king, you must kill him. So if you only harass and vex and attack uh, uh, the nominee but do not defeat him or her, um, at best, they're going to just forget about it and and be a, a good judge who doesn't hold grudges, and that 's what a good judge or justice you know, how a good judge or justice should operate. but they're also human beings, and human beings sometimes hold grudges. and when you go after them in in all sorts of nasty ways, and it 's people in one party who are going after them, the opposite party what have you succeeded in doing now maybe you've gotten a lot of FaceTime for yourself and and money flows into your campaign oh you know so and senator so-and-so is really a crusader
0: can you think of a time when you thought that a decision by a justice or an opinion um you know sort of smacked of uh, an echo back to the confirmation hearing of that justice
1: well at some point uh Maybe we'll talk about oral arguments. Um, We haven't talked about them very much. I I do think that uh, Justice Thomas was absolutely uh, traumatized by a very nasty confirmation process. I don't want to get into all the factual details um, uh, for now. Um, uh, But if you read his own autobiography, My Grandfather's Son, um, he, I think describes um, that at at one point he was just in a fetal crouch, you know, on on the floor um, in his home, sort of moaning in in physical distress, um, and and he gets confirmed, uh, because they, uh, you know, if you strike the king, you must kill him, and his opponents did not kill him. They just struck him, and they struck him hard. Um, now joining the Supreme Court in it's already basically um, a play in progress. Always, um is is difficult under the the, the most um, uh, fortunate of circumstances. Um, let's imagine that you clerked on the Supreme Court yourself. You know actually many of its uh, rhythms. But still, the eight justices that are already on the court are have been in a conversation with each other for um, uh, often years. Um, Each one of them is seeing um, many issues on the docket for uh, the second, third, fourth, fifth times because issues come back in in different incarnations. Um, uh, For you, the learning curve is intensely steep, especially if you haven't clerked on the Supreme Court um, as a youngster, as Thomas had not. Um, A lot of cases... Um, and the caseload used to be heavier um, uh, uh, when he joined the court, um, um, you're seeing them all basically for the first time even if you're a sitting federal court of appeals judge. It looks very different um, when you're Supreme Court justice. Where you, for example, you, you are um, authorized to overturn previous Supreme Court decisions in a way that you're not as a lower federal court judge. So, wow, it's, it's difficult under the, the, um, the best of circumstances. Now, you know, I think Thomas was reeling from his confirmation process, and, and I'm not sure you see that in any particular decision, uh, uh, opinion, uh, but I do think um, it's not a total surprise that he just doesn't ask questions at oral argument um, at the beginning uh, because um, he's, um, it's possible he's kind of shell-shocked. Um, now, after um, uh, a pattern of his generally not asking questions um, at oral argument emerges, um, he might come to actually see that there's some advantages um, to that. There's, there's some reasons that. I'm not interrupting the lawyers. I'm, I'm, I'm not interrupting my colleagues. I'm, I'm, I'm just letting people um, um, speak. Now, uh, uh, he has been asking questions of, of late in the Zoom world, um, which has a different architecture of, of Q&A at oral argument, um, uh, where each justice actually is... Given a few minutes to ask questions in sequence, and so he's not interrupting um, any lawyer, he's not interrupting um, any colleague. Um, we'll see if, um, when we go back to live oral arguments, he he um, um, uh, starts um, uh, asking more questions from the bench than he than he did before. But but, um, I, and I'm not the first one to to, to speculate on, on that. Um, uh, uh, but I, I do think it's not preposterous to think that. Uh, that, at least at the beginning, his disinclination to ask questions at oral argument was connected to some extent um, with um, a very rough confirmation process.
0: Of course, you didn't really answer my question, but that's okay, because I was asking whether it influenced you, you an opinion. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And, I, and I could see where that would be stick, you know, ticklish for you to basically... It's almost, would almost constitute accusing the justice of not being objective. Essentially, is what I, what I'm asking you in that case. Um, well, they're but human we are talking about they're one's they're life. Human influ- beings. Yeah, we're talk- and we're talking about one's life yeah. experience influencing, um, which is, uh, as you say, they're human beings, and it would be unrealistic to think that it would have no effect. Um, okay. Well, let's, when we talk about Justice Alito, I, I will talk about
1: a general pattern that's true of Justice Alito, um, and people can draw their own conclusions about um, the sources of that pattern.
0: Well, let's talk about him, because he's next in line, isn't he, in terms of seniority? Um, and let me reiterate
1: that for many of the justices, I, I, um, not all, uh, but many, I do consider uh, them to be uh, genuine friends. Um, people that um, that I enjoy sharing meals with and, and talking to, and 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 I respect them all. None is perfect. I do respect them all, especially because I've spent time in Washington D.C. and among the three branches of government, I think the court is the least dysfunctional, um, the most earnest and honest. Um, I said some of this in a, a, a testimony that I gave actually in a confirmation hearing a, a couple of years, ago, a few years ago, um, and here's. Um, here are some of the things that I mean. That um, they do their own work. Um, They don't spend their time... They they read the briefs carefully. They uh, are very involved in in things that appear under their names. They are, um, if not writing every word of every opinion, they're editing it closely and and monitoring it um, with extreme care. Um, They are not accepting campaign contributions, and they're not tweeting snark, and they're not pandering to the base, and they're not elbowing their way um, uh, forward to the, te- the television cameras. Um, they, uh, more than anyone else in Washington, D.C., they're, they're all lawyers and very um, well-trained lawyers who all did well and all went to impre- have impressive legal educations and, um, um, and had, had, had excellent grades in, in, in high school and college, and, and uh, they're good students, and they, they went to good law schools and, uh, and did very well there. Um, and we're very well respected as uh, uh, lawyers, um, and who more than anyone else in Washington, D.C., from time to time actually do cross party lines. Um, that's much less common, almost non existent in the House of Representatives on um, uh, fraught issues, and, and pretty unusual e- uh, even in the Senate these days, alas. So I like them. Uh, personally. Many of them. I don't know them all. I don't, as I mentioned before, I, I don't think I've ever met the Chief Justice. I don't think I've ever met uh, Justice Gorsuch. So I like them personally. In the main, I actually think they're good and decent people. Um, and uh, and I respect them professionally. Um, and I'll try to say at least one nice thing about each of them. Um, uh, uh, what, uh, talk about an opinion or an idea Uh, that um, uh, shows them in in a very attractive light, and then I'll say at least one critical thing about it. So, Justice Alito, let's start with what I consider his best opinion. Um, This is also a little embarrassing, because it's an opinion in which he um, uh, cites some of my scholarship um, pretty extensively. Um, um, But, listen, um, I wrote that scholarship so that It could be useful to my fellow citizens, but also to uh, judges and justices. This was an opinion called City of Chicago versus McDonald. Um, It's from 2010, and the issue in the case is does the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, uh, the one that says no state shall make or enforce any law which will abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States or um, uh, violate the... Or, or, or deny any a person um, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Does that amendment, which when it talks about states also, of course, is um, uh, limiting um, uh, cities and localities, which are parts of states, does that amendment mean that an individual has a right to have a gun in the home for, the, for um, self-protection? One way of of asking that question, a a kind of legalistic way, is does the 14th Amendment incorporate Second Amendment rights against states and localities, um, assuming that the Second Amendment itself has um, an individual right to own a gun in the Home for Self-Protection component? Now, the court previously had said, yes, the Second Amendment does incorporate, does include, um, uh, as, as part of its meaning, uh, a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. That was a decision by Justice Scalia, writing for the court in a case called Heller. It involved the District of Columbia, and therefore the federal government. Now, Justice Scalia actually, uh, may he rest in peace, um, did not write that many majority opinions, um, in part because he was uh, feisty and he sometimes had difficulty holding a court. Um, uh, his most famous and, I think, best decision was a dissent uh, in Morrison versus Olson, a case about uh, the independent prosec- a special prosecutor in which he strongly defended a, a vision of, of uh, presidential authority, and I agree with his vision and fi- find it very powerful indeed. Um, But I don't think Heller was such a great decision, and I don't think Heller was such a great decision because Scalia insisted on jamming everything into the Second Amendment, which of course talks about militias, and Scalia had to sort of brush that under the the carpet um, a bit. I think Heller was easy and obvious, and Scalia took an easy case and made it a hard case. Um, The best argument for a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection doesn't come just from the text in history, the original history of the Second Amendment, but from later moments in American history when Americans rethought the Second Amendment most dramatically during the Civil War era, um, which gives us the 14th Amendment. And in that era, Americans decide that there's, of course, a need to have a gun in the home for self-protection, especially if you're a black person, especially if you're in the South when you actually can't count on the local sheriff to protect you um, and your home um, and your family when the Klan comes calling. And this vision that there's a right to have a, a gun in the Home for Self-Protection is explicitly, um, uh, was explicitly part of a statute, a landmark statute called the Freedmen's Bureau Bill passed by the Reconstruction Congress, Um, And that bill was a companion to the 14th Amendment itself. And the 14th Amendment itself was understood as um, glossing and reinterpreting and making applicable against states in general the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, in the process of making the Second Amendment applicable against states. Maybe the meaning of the Second Amendment changed because there's a new amendment coming along the 14th that modified the second. And Scalia said none of that, really, because he actually hadn't done his homework. Um, he, he, wasn't, he, he claimed to be an originalist, but he, he didn't spend lots of his time actually reading scholarship and reading history. It wasn't truly his love. He loved words. He was a wordsmith, and he had fun with words, um, and he made all these grammatical moves about how the reference to militia was actually in the prefatory clause, and it wasn't in the operative clause, but you might think, actually, that when an amendment tells you its purpose that's kind of relevant to to its meaning, but Scalia didn't want to play that game, so he he played a a word-parsing game, and it wasn't actually as persuasive as it could have been. He took an easy case to repeat, and he made it hard by trying to cram everything into the text and history of the Second Amendment, um, rather than talking about the 14th Amendment and its um, revision, that is, its revision of uh, um, arms-bearing in America... Um, he, uh, he could have even said, forget the Second Amendment, forget you know, in general the, the specific history of the 14th Amendment. Guns are to, in homes are part of the American tradition. They're part of American culture today. Uh, they're protected in virtually every state constitution, and they are. Um, and so, just as there's a right to privacy in the home, whether or not that that word explicitly appears in the original Bill of Rights or the Fourteenth Amendment, for that matter, it's part of American culture. Privacy in the home. Um, see Griswold versus Connecticut, the right of marital privacy in the home. Um, um, so there's a, a, a right to have guns in the home. Um, the, the the joke that I sometimes um, have have made. Um, is that uh, liberals believe there's a right to have sex in the home. Conservatives believe there's a right to have guns in the home. I say this is America. Give them both what they want. You know, Personally, I prefer sex, but you know, whatever floats your boat. Um, and that's my little joke line. Um, and people remember it. Um, and Scalia could have, again, invoked unenumerated rights in the American tradition, but he didn't. He could have invoked the 14th Amendment's history and the Freedmen's Bureau Act, and he didn't. Um, and that's why Heller was not a great opinion. Now, um,
0: it does seem books, like, just from a from a layman's point of view, you know, I tend to think of incorporation as taking rights that are established at the federal level and in- and incorporating them at the state level. Um, so, if the if the right therefore is has not been established at the federal level, how do you incorporate it at the state level? You know, so that you know, if you're to to have this kind of cramped interpretation of the Second Amendment that that Scalia uh, has, uh, you know, this textual-based interpretation, makes it harder to incorporate it against the states, it would seem to me, whereas if it's already a privilege or immunity, as you say, then it becomes much easier to incorporate it. Um, We're going to put up
1: on um, the website, uh, kilomar.com, a a short little thing, a uh, a five-minute little conversation that I had uh, the day after, the day of the Newtown massacre, the Newtown tragedy, I had a conversation with Ezra Klein. Uh, um, uh, um, I think he was then at the Washington Post, and, and, and now, of course, he's, uh, he went on to found, uh, co-found Vox, and he, he's a New York Times columnist now. But he and I had a conversation. We were supposed to be talking about filibuster reform. Uh, and uh, we had, had to schedule a conversation, but um, that was the day of the Newtown tragedy, and so he started asking me about um, the Second Amendment, um, and uh, we had this conversation, and he um, wrote a little piece about it, um, and we'll put that up on the, the website, and our audience can see the original Second Amendment vision. I told him, you can see all of this in two paintings. One, the Battle of Bunker Hill, which is the founding vision, which is all about militias, um, a version of that painting is actually in the Yale University Art Gallery. And then there's actually um, a, a, a very famous um, uh, cartoon that appeared in Harper's Weekly during the Civil War era, all about the Freedmen's Bureau. And it's a pun on uh, the earlier uh, painting, uh, Bunkers Hill. And in Bunkers Hill, the, the, the arms bearing in America is military, it's collective, it's localist, it's political. Um, militias. When guns are outlawed, only the king's men will have guns. We need state militias, state's rights against an imperial center, and that's Bunker Hill, and that's that first painting. Second one, the vision is different. It's not military, it's civilian. The uniforms have come off. It's not actually localist, it's nationalist. The federal, the flag of the government, of the central government in the middle of that picture um, is um these are the good guys, not the bad guys um, um basically ulysses this, s this grant there's a, 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 a um, an officer in the middle of um, this Freedmen's bureau painting that looks a little bit like um uh, uh, grant and and he's a hero and not a, a villain um, a, a, as the Redcoats were in the first one so initially second amendment is localist it's military um it's collective it's militia but then this Freedman's Bureau Bill knows it's, it's not collective. It's, it's, the, the, it's people needing guns in their homes. It's, it's a picture of black people with guns, um, in, including bayonets, and they're going to be able to keep their, their weapons at home, which will protect them um, um, from the Klan. So my claim is, uh, and this is a thesis of a, a, my, my um, first major book for a general audience called uh, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, that the Bill of Rights meant one thing at the founding and a different thing in Reconstruction. Um, Creation and Reconstruction, almost like Old and New Testament. Okay, you look at the Old Testament and it talks about um, Yahweh, who's um, got a very um, intimidating persona. Um, and then this reformist rabbi comes along and he says, oh no, it's Abba, Father. And, and if you're a Christian, you're reinterpreting earlier scriptures in light of later ones, which we call the New Testament. Um, um, the book of Isaiah can be interpreted to say, uh, a young woman shall give birth, um, but the New Testament actually reinterprets that in effect as um, a virgin shall give birth, or not just the New Testament, but but, but um Uh, Christian teachings. So if you're a Christian, you read earlier texts in light of later ones. I say um, in the American constitutional tradition, you have to understand the founding. um, It's the creation, but you also have to understand this new birth of freedom. Um, uh, Lincoln gives a different, it gives a certain interpretation of Jefferson's all men are created equal. And that new interpretation becomes adopted in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment vision. So even if Scalia is wrong about the original 2nd Amendment vision, um, guns and homes are right and easy because whatever the founding was about, even if it was only about militias, military arms-bearing, collective um, uh, um, uh, arms-bearing, local and, and, and political... That changed in America, and Scalia wasn't interested in all of that because he actually doesn't read, didn't read scholarship, didn't read history, um, and now enter Alito. The reason that Alito's opinion in Chicago versus City McDonald is a very impressive opinion is that he does tell that Reconstruction story, which he needs to, because it's about, actually, the 14th Amendment in states and localities. And he, he reads scholarship, including my own, and he cites it, and that's what a good judge or justice should do. Um, and I think he makes a very persuasive case um, in that opinion. Uh, well, let me tell you one other thing. Now, um, that um, I'm not particularly, personally, a gun guy. I've never owned I I don't own a gun, I've never owned a gun. They scare me. Um, uh, The last time I had a gun in my hand was probably 40 years ago, once at a firing range when I was just um, being taught some things uh, for a merit badge in the Boy Scouts. Um, And... uh, and just as I said in our earlier episode, of, uh, that I personally am pro choice, um, but I'm critical of um, what the court said in Roe versus Wade and what Breyer said later on in um, Stenberg versus Carhartt. I personally am not a gun guy, um, but I think the Constitution does um, give you a right to have a gun in your home for self protection, um, uh, uh, but you don't have to have one, it doesn't require you to have one. And- uh,
0: and then when I don't have a gun, I'm not a gun guy. Well, for my, for my part, not only am I not a gun guy, <laughs> but I would actually go further, which is that I am made very uncomfortable um, being around a gun. So in other words, I, 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 my safety, I feel, is compromised when I am in the presence of someone who has a gun. But I'm sure you've been in many homes, and you haven't
1: you know, rudely asked them, is there a gun in this home? You've been invited to people's homes, and there are guns in those homes, and they're allowed to have guns in their homes, and uh, uh, um, uh, this is America. Um, and so Alito's best opinion, in my view, is city of Chicago- versus McDonald Again, I conceded. It's a little awkward because he, he cites me on multiple occasions, but, 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 I, but I think he gets it right. And he's paying attention to scholarship. And by the way, Scalia didn't do that, truthfully, in Heller um, uh, to the same extent. Now, um, uh, so uh, that's my favorite Alito opinion. And I've never asked him uh, whether he himself is a gun person. Um, so, uh, um, which a certain kind of legal realist would ask, "Oh, he only uh, believes this because he's a gun person." Well, then, why do I believe in it? Because I'm not a gun guy. Um, I just think it's it's uh, it follows from my understanding of um, the relevant materials, uh, legal materials. Okay. Um, now. Um, what do I think uh, to be you now is the most critical thing? I would say about Justice Alito, and maybe this goes back to the confirmation process. I don't know. I would say Justice Alito has been—I'll uh, say—I'll say two critical things: um, the general pattern of his um, opinion have um, been pretty consistently politically conservative in the cases that are politically charged. Some of them just aren't. Um, Or put differently, he's the justice who's the least likely of all of them thus far to cross the political aisle um, in a high-profile, politically charged case where it matters. That is, there's almost no Alito opinion where he joined, for example, uh, four liberal justices, and there used to be four Democrat justices, liberal justices when Justice Ginsburg was around. Um, There was virtually no opinion where Alito plus the four made up the majority. And if it's Alito and a whole bunch of others, then it doesn't matter because he's not decisive. But I told you that um, Roberts was Decisive in Sibelius, he was the the conservative who joined the liberal four and upheld Obamacare. And there are cases where Thomas has joined the the liberal four and um, and and it was five to four and and Thomas made the difference. Um, and there are cases um, where um, I think some of the other. Uh, uh, where, uh, we're, going, we're not talking about the current nine, where Justice Kennedy, um, a Reagan appointee, um, a Republican from California, um, joined the Liberals, the Liberal Four, um, and made the difference. Many cases um, involving same sex marriage, for example, involving um, uh, sodomy laws, for example, um, in, involving, um, so actually three cases involving, uh, four cases involving gay rights, um, um, uh, one about the Defense of Marriage Act, Windsor. Um, I already mentioned Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case, a case called um, uh, um, tech, uh, um, a, a case involving sodomy laws in Texas, Lawrence versus Texas, and an earlier case involving an anti-gay ordinance in Colorado, um, uh, Romery v. Evans. So four cases where Kennedy is joining the liberals. He joined the liberals to uphold affirmative action um, in te- uh, Texas. So so I can identify. Um, major cases where other conservatives have, in politically charged cases, joined the liberals to make a five-justice majority on an important issue. There's maybe only one time when Justice Alito did that, and it was a weird, quirky case. I don't want to go into the the, the details at all. And, and if he hadn't done that, the court might have been evenly divided, and that would have created some complexities because there was more than one issue in the case. And um, so, so he has done that um, less than... Um, have others, from that point of view, you could say he's a legal realist of a certain sort. He thinks that law is kind of politics in various ways, or at least that's what his voting pattern seems to be. And if he is that sort of justice, I want to say, oh, I know where he learned that. He learned that at Yale Law School, um, because I'm not a hard-boiled legal realist in this um, crude sense, but a lot of uh, Professors um, were at Yale Law School, and and he's a legal realist, arguably of the right. Interestingly, Justice Sotomayor um, is a, a legal realist of the left. We're going to talk about her next, um, and, and she very rarely, in politically charged cases, um, joins the conservatives to as the decisive um, um, a fifth vote. Um, they usually don't need her, um, but uh, um, uh, but she's often. Um, really at the left wing of, of the court, in, 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 sometimes in dissent, separate opinions. So, um, and what does she, what does she and um, Sam Alito have in common? Well, they both went to Princeton undergrad. Um, they both went to Yale Law School, and maybe at Yale Law School they learned legal realism good and hard. I'll say one other critical thing about uh, my friend Sam Samuelito keep yeah, he laps into it Sam he is my friend and and, and I, I I quite adore also his wife Martha Ann, who's really fun um and we've spent time together and um, uh, um the other thing that um i I would say I'm, I'm critical of is um in October of last year, Justice Alito, and he wasn't the only one, Justice Thomas. And Justice Gorsuch seemed to want to basically um, revive Bush versus Gore in various ways. Now, until um, October before the election, the only one who had ever said anything nice about Bush versus Gore was Justice Thomas. And the other justices actually, um, um, some of them thought it was an embarrassment. Justice Souter thieves the court. Justice O'Connor, I'm told, you know. Would, would tell people in private conversations that she kind of uh, 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 regretted that and found it embarrassing. Justice Scalia, when asked, was very defensive. Uh, when asked um, in, in various contexts, he'd just say, get over it. Um, but he didn't, uh, which is, I think, not actually the, a, a particularly attractive um, uh, response. But he wasn't citing it with strong approval in his opinions. Um, and, and the court as a whole has never done so, Justice Thomas, I think, had cited it with approval um, prior to to last year, but Alito and uh, Gorsuch started doing the same thing. Um, in one little uh, moment, uh, Justice Kavanaugh seemed to to also um, be eager to revive certain aspects of Bush versus Gore. Um, Andy, you know that's where I leaped in, um, writing. Uh, a couple of op-eds, uh, one with uh, uh, Josh Geltzer and um, and Neil uh, Katyal and um, and uh, my brother Vic Amar in the New York Times. Um, uh, I, I think Josh Geltzer just helped us, um, uh, but Neil and, and Vic were, were co-authors in which we pushed back on this very uh, hard, pushed back against this. Um, another in a piece in the New York Daily News um, that I, I wrote for myself, Uh and actually, interestingly, Justice Kavanaugh stopped talking about Bush versus Gore. I don't know why. Um, whether he read the piece at all um, or not, uh, whether it persuaded him or I don't love efforts to try to revive Bush versus Gore. It showed the court at its worst, and efforts to um, uh, revive Bush versus Gore are deeply unfortunate.
0: Okay. So, uh, anything else about uh, Justice Alito's background in terms of clerking and his experience? Uh, uh, his earlier life, or anything like that that you want to get into?
1: Um, Justice Alito um, is a taciturn person. He's become a little chattier um, uh, in, in recent years, but but he's he's very quiet and soft-spoken. And uh, in his own clerkship, after graduating from Yale Law School, um, we have Judge Leonard Garth, uh, now deceased, um, uh, on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, um, a court on which um, uh, uh, Sam Alito would later serve um, as, a, as a judge before becoming a justice. So he served on the same court uh, where he was a clerk. But in his own clerkship with, with Judge uh, Leonard Garth, very well-respected um, uh, jurist, um, I think the secretary um, said um, jokingly that over the course of the year... Um, Sam Alito uh, uttered um, four words. On his first day, he said, hi, judge. And on his last day, he said, bye, judge. <laughs> <laughs> so a Calvin Coolidge-like story. Uh, interestingly. For, for, for our audience, uh, Calvin Coolidge was once at a, um, a social event, and a flirtatious young woman came up to him and said, uh, 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 Mr. Coolidge, maybe it was President Coolidge, um, Maybe it was vice president, because I can't remember when uh, the social event occurred. Uh, but she, she uh, flirtatiously said to him, um, "I've been talking with my friends, and uh, we've made a bet that I can get you to say to me um, more than
0: um, uh, two words." And he said, "You lose." <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I've I've used that one uh, in many contexts. I think uh, Justice Alito also served with. Uh, uh, Judge Marianne Trump Barry eventually. Interesting. She
1: likes him very much, and, and uh, they were friendly and respectful. And um, um, I, as our audience knows, am no fan of the Donald, um, but I'm quite a fan of his sister, Marianne Trump Barry. Um, and uh, uh, we actually uh, together once uh, uh, took a tour of uh, uh, Falling Water. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright's um, epic building, and, and that was a lot of fun. Um, uh, and um, that was actually at a Third Circuit Judicial Conference, um, and I think that was the same event in which um, Sam Alito actually was the keynote speaker, and by the way, he was hilarious as the keynote. He, 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 he's good at deadpan, he's kind of quiet, but, but he has a wonderful sense of humor, and he also gave um, a really um, uh, interesting... Uh, meditation on the metaphor of um, the judge or the justice as umpire. Uh, And he did so with a really interesting discussion, Andy, of um, the strike zone and how it has changed over the years and how it's interpreted. And he actually read what the book says um, about the strike zone versus how umpires actually, in fact, call the strike zone. Sam um, loves... Uh, baseball and softball he's a very very good softball player himself very good um um uh, he's powerfully built um and uh, let me tell our audience one other thing because i think um justice alito at his best very much he, he tries to be a judge um he tries to inhabit that role um uh and um one of my um very best students of all time, Andrew Mangino, he's an undergrad, um, was actually on the Little League team that um, Sam Alito coached. Um, And uh, Andrew didn't even realize until the last day that the star player on the team was actually Alito's son. And he didn't realize that, because Alito never favored his son, even though he was the best player and didn't give him more playing time and all the rest, and just was was very very fair toward every person on the team. And and only coincidentally did Andrew find out on the last day. Oh my goodness, the the coach is actually the the father of our star player. But that never showed.
0: Well, um, of course I uh, I've been involved with the Little League over the years, and my uh, as you know I'm a now retired ophthalmologist, and my a Little League team that I sponsored was known as Lipka's Lasers. <laughs> so, okay, so let's move on from Justice Alito then. Um, oh, but let me just actually make that one connection. If you said, oh, Alito
1: is, um, in his voting pattern, more consistently Republican or conservative, you know, if true, is that in any way tied to um, the... the the kind of nastiness in the confirmation process in which I think the Democrats were not very generous to him. Um, uh, I, myself, by the way, was... um, I had never met him at, at this point, but I was asked... Um, early in the process to read some of his materials and comment on them for um, the news hour, the PBS news hour. And again, I'd never met him before, and I was just reading some memos that he had um, composed and other things, and I just reported that I thought they were very well done.
0: Well, I would say that he's, you know, sometimes people are, are more liberal when they're younger and that sort of thing, and I think George Bernard Shaw had something to say about that. Um, but that's not really true of, of uh Justice Alito. I mean, I believe he was a, a supporter of uh you know Barry Goldwater's campaign and he he was a fan of William F. Buckley and so forth. So he's he's been very consistently conservative um, his whole life, um, which is fine. I mean he's entitled to be, but uh, you know, there isn't a lot of evidence in this biography of let's say rethinking of these uh of these positions, which I think is part of what you're alluding to in the notion of does he cross the line, uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, the partisan line on occasion, does a case open his eyes to a particular uh, issue or something like that that's inconsistent with a political philosophy? The answer, so far, would one would have to say is mostly no.
1: Um, and a certain kind of legal realism does try to look at, the, again, the background, the biography uh, of a judge or justice.
0: So uh on then to Justice Sotomayor. Um
1: and uh she uh is in lots of ways interestingly paired with Justice Alito. Um they both went to Princeton undergrad, they both went to Yale Law School, uh, they both um served as uh, judges on lower federal courts for um many years. She um, first on the bench, and then on the Court of Appeals. Um, he um, uh, in in New York, the Second Circuit. He on uh, the Court of Appeals, basically in New Jersey, on on the on the Third Circuit. Um, and um, uh, like Sam Alito, uh, Sonia Sotomayor um, is someone that I personally really like a lot. Um, we. First met um, out uh, at a uh, an event in Malibu at Pepperdine to train um, future. Uh, it was a weekend event training um, would be law clerks and and she was one of the um, guest speakers and and so was I. And we spent really two days um, um, talking to each other, um, having meals together socializing just a bit um uh, uh between the the seminar events uh and by the end of that uh, weekend i really felt as if she was one of my best friends from high school or something um you know and, and uh she cuz she she has such a just, she, uh, just a, a warm and giving personality so um i i quite adore her um later she came to an event at Yale Law School. It was a reunion event. Um, there was um, a huge lunch in, uh, at Yale. uh used to be known as Student Commons. It's a, a grand building, and there are hundreds of, of, of people in attendance. Uh, she arrived a bit late, um, and so everyone was basically seated. And it was really striking to me. She knew lots of people. This was her reunion class, and she sat next to me. So, and, and, and I, you know, I thought uh, I was very honored. That was very nice. And why did she do that? Because my kids were with me and she wanted to actually sit with the kids and talk to the kids. Cause she's just, she's a, a warm, lovely human being. And they had brought little, actually hoping that they would meet her little photographs um, of her that we had printed out before. And she not only signed them, but she warmly inscribed them with a little bit of, you know, lessons for life, um, um, she took pictures with them, um, and she, she, she's just a, a, a really um, a generous, giving, um, kind um, a human being whose maybe most important contribution on the bench may very well be justice as role model. Uh, she comes from um, a, a rather disadvantaged background, n- not a lot of wealth, um, in much of the, the, the um, um, basically, to some extent, sort of, you know, raised by her her mom to an important um, degree, um, a scholarship kid um, uh, at Princeton and then uh, Yale Law School, who um, uh, works very hard um, and um, uh, does not forget where she came from.
0: I think actually her grandmother was uh, was a powerful influence uh, in her upbringing perhaps even more so than her mother. Also, she's a type 1 diabetic, so she's been, you know, uh, has spent much of her her life uh, with, uh, you know, medical issues. And and if
1: I had forgotten the grandmother element, I actually have a copy of her book, My Beloved World, but I actually haven't, which is autobiographical, I haven't read it. Look, if, if she's in some ways, like Alito, Princeton Yale Law School, she's in other ways very much like Clarence Thomas. You see, he writes a book, My Grandfather's Son, who um, grows up as an, an, as an outsider. He black, she brown, he south, she north. And they both have an extraordinary capacity for um, generosity and, and, and friendship. And, and both, are, I've seen personally, have done uh, acts of extraordinary kindness, especially to youngsters, and spend a lot of their time trying to inspire uh, youngsters. So, um, uh, in fact, one of the things that most endeared her to me, um, since you mentioned uh, diabetes, and this is, we're doing legal realism of a certain sort. We're trying to talk about these as, as folks as human beings. So we're sitting together outside on a picnic table in in um, uh, uh on the Pepperdine campus at Malibu and we're having lunch and, and she just, you know, she, she doesn't say, um, she, I have to, you know, um, uh, uh, she doesn't walk away or something. She just pulls out her um, uh, insulin kit um, and gives herself, uh, you know, an injection. Just because, like, we have no secrets. You know, I trust you. We're, you know, we're just human beings. And and um and it was just so um unaffected. It was just so honest and genuine. I thought, wow. Um, this is a person and she's, you know, and, and we don't even know each other and she's trusting me and treating me as a friend and not trying to hide the fact that she has um, this medical condition.
0: You know, I think that that's, uh, you know, illustrative. She she wears her biography um, for many to see and I think that, that that is in the role model category that you were discussing. So uh, in some ways, you know, she's a... Uh, a walking, you know, advertisement for affirmative action. She has herself said that she that she considered herself a, that that her admission to Princeton um would not have happened but for affirmative action. So and, this is her uh, own the, her own uh, words. So it's not, you know, me saying this. Um and And and
1: Andy, this isn't pre-rehearsed, but my, the one of the cases that I'm going to the, uh, the uh, cases I'm going to talk about, one of the, the, the three um why well, i do think she actually went too far truthfully um was an affirmative action case where i think she just um uh went uh, um further than i w- uh, would be comfortable going on the law of affirmative action a, a, a case called shooty um uh, out of out of um uh, michigan so is an int- and again we haven't pre rehearsed this that, that that you would say that um uh, cuz uh um that is i think an important part of her own self understanding Um, An identity, and one of the things. So when she actually gave herself an injection, I said, "You know, um, Sonia. You know, we just immediately started. You know, um, I wasn't professor, and she wasn't judge. That um, we were just uh, friends, um, Sonia Nikhil. I said." You know, since you're kind of so open about it, I want to ask you a question. This is an event to train uh, would-be law clerks. Um, they've already been uh, accepted for clerkships, most of them, and, and uh, they're about to. They're going to be starting next year. Um, do you, if if a law clerk has some sort of um, uh, issue, um, a medical issue or something like that, should he or she be straight with the judge in the interview about that, or should he or he should uh, he or she sort of not talk about it and she says oh no you know definitely cuz you don't want a clerk for someone who who doesn't understand that and respect that this is a this is a close working relationship so um you know i i don't hide and and and, and the clerk shouldn't shouldn't hide um uh, and um so um uh, we actually uh, talked about um uh, 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 about that um, uh, insulin injection and and what it meant more generally for how judges and clerks should interact.
0: Interesting. I wonder if that's if one could generalize that to employer employee uh interactions um you know beyond that because one might think that well, you know, if you believe as the as the person applying for the job that it's irrelevant to your performance, but that it might that the, perhaps the per, the the boss that you might have might not be so open to it. Um, then why would you want to you know, cha- decrease your chance of getting the job when you don't have to?
1: Mm-hmm. And, of course, a clerkship isn't just a job. It's, it's um, an intimate relationship of sorts. It's one judge or justice with two or three or four apprentices, four at the Supreme Court at most, two or three um, at an appellate level, one or two at a district level.
0: Okay. So, um, now onto her, uh, her jurisprudence. Um, how, what would you say her career on the court has been like? Um,
1: her life, uh, could would have been very different if Hillary Clinton had won. And I want you all to sort of see, um, uh, 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 cause she's basically doomed to be in dissent, um, Uh, maybe forever, um, but definitely for the the next several years. Um, uh, um, And it connects to some of the things we talked about, uh, uh, about uh, Justice Breyer and possible retirement and just counting the numbers on the court, Uh, especially because she is very much um, a liberal, a crusading liberal as a jurist, um, and it's a conservative court with um, six uh, Republicans um, now. Imagine that Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, which every almost everyone thought would happen. Um, uh, Remember, we have to avoid hindsight bias. So, so the reason the Democrats didn't fight fiercely for Garland is they thought he was going to get confirmed in any event, because you know, um, even if um, uh, uh, it didn't happen under Obama's watch, it would happen immediately thereafter under. Secretary, uh, um, now President in this alternative universe, um, uh, Clinton's watch, Hillary Clinton's watch. Okay, if that had happened, well, then you have on the Supreme Court for the first time since 1970, (laughs) um, a a Democratic majority on the Supreme Court. Um, uh, You would have had... Most senior, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she was still alive. And then Stephen Breyer, and then Sonia Sotomayor, and then Kagan, and in this alternative universe, the newly appointed Merrick Garland. Five. Now, and Hillary Clinton's president. What's going to happen next now that Hillary Clinton is present in this alternative universe to the the court membership?
0: Well, it's good. It's interesting to see who might retire. I mean, Anthony Kennedy retired next, but would he have retired, in fact? Yeah,
1: Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to retire. She was waiting to Mm -hmm. be... Replaced by the first woman present. That's what she was waiting for, mm-hmm. and now it's happened. So she, of course, retires. Okay, and and Briar, you know,
0: maybe happily retires too. You know. Well, that and, one I don't buy because because if that if you say that, then why hasn't he retired now? Well, I think he does. Okay, so let's just uh, just
1: give me that just for this. We don't want to go back. <laughs> We've had that fight. Yes. Okay, so so but if. Um, Ginsburg retires soon enough, and Breyer eventually retires. You know, at some point, on the watch of a Democrat. Okay, he's not going to wait for you know, risk um, having a Republican replace him. So at some point, he retires. Okay, now who's the senior Justice among the um, the the,
0: De- the Democratic Five? Uh, Stephen Breyer. No, well, no, well, no if he's retired. Reti- if he's retired, yeah, Ginsburg steps yeah, down. Now it's Breyer steps down.
1: Laird. Yes. She's the de facto chief justice of the United States, the first woman chief justice. Why do I say that? Because if she's got the five, um, um, she gets to assign the opinions, which is the main perk of the chief justice, other than the ceremonial stuff. Yes, she's not going to preside at a presidential impeachment, and she's not going to sit in the center chair um, and and do all the other ceremonial
0: stuff. Administer the oath of office.
1: Well, actually, that doesn't have to be the chief. It could be anyone you like, but yes, by tradition, okay. But the key power to decide who basically writes for the coalition, that would be Sonia Sotomayor in this alternative universe. She becomes chief justice um, de facto. Um, That's a very different world, isn't it? And oh, she could almost taste it. Um, I never talked to her about this. I'm just a political scientist, you know, court watcher, analyzing the thing. That's what was almost in the cards. And, and who was going to be the playmaking guard doing a lot of the, the you know, uh, putting together the opinions? I think that was going to be Elena Kagan that we're going to talk about next. She would um, basically um, the Earl Warren, I mean, see, the, um, the, the William Brennan, you know, of... Um, this new uh, liberal court, Sonia Sotomayor, in effect, would be the Earl Warren, um, and, uh, and Elena Kagan, would be the, the William Brandon. Um, and it didn't happen. OK. Uh, so um, the uh, most impressive things about Justice Sotomayor um, are as follows. And I've already talked a little bit about uh, one. One, I think she's an extraordinary goodwill ambassador and role model and inspiration. For millions of youngsters, uh, especially uh, girls, um, maybe especially um, uh, girls of color, um, um, I, I know my own daughter Cara, who got a chance to take a picture with Justice Sotomayor. You know, has that hanging up in um, her bedroom with a warm inscription about always doing your best. She didn't just say, you know, just sign it. She she actually had a uh, uh, an inspirational message, as Justice Thomas has done, actually uh, truthfully for you know my son. Um, these, these they're, look, our audience doesn't know these people. They may just see them, you know, in a certain contexts. They're impressive human beings, um, and and smart people, and honorable and decent people in, in, in the main. And I say that even though I, you know, each one I disagree with on important issues, you know, even my my old boss, Steve Breyer. Um, so. That's probably been her most important contribution just as a, a role model and inspiration um, for um, what anyone born in America can, can aspire to. Um, and that is important because the court isn't just about cranking out opinions. Um, there is a symbolic function to it, as is true for the presidency, um, for example. Now, in terms of her judicial contribution, remember, she's in the minority she has many fewer chances to write for the court, and especially you know to write for five liberal justices because the, they there ain't five liberal justices, and there have never been you know since she joined the court. um I would say her biggest moment comes something that no one else would ever have noticed, but I did. It was in the oral argument in Sibelius, where I think it was on the maybe it was the second day of oral argument it was clear that she understood the tax argument um, and that the mandate basically was enforceable through the tax code. So when um, uh, John Roberts said, or else what, suppose you don't do the mandate, she picked up on that very impressively. She she learned some good tax law as a, in a policy wonk, uh, at Yale Law School, and she basically was explaining in Q&A, at oral argument, that... Um, if you don't um, procure a, a health care policy what happens is in effect you can't claim the the tax credit um, or with the tax benefit um, that you would be able to claim if you had um, a um, a, um, a compliant um, uh, uh, insurance policy, an insurance policy that complied with the, the the rules of the law. And she says, in effect, it's no different than, let's say, so, solar panels. Um, if You don't have a solar panel. You can't claim the solar panel tax credit um, when you pay your income tax. And if you do have a solar panel, you can claim that credit. And she basically says, it's really not any different um, with this insurance uh, mandate, so-called. If you have an insurance policy, you get the tax benefit. If not, not. And it was absolutely right. It was brilliant. She saw it and helped, I think, maybe some of the others see it. And so... Um, the piece that we already posted on the website in connection with um, John Roberts and Sibelius, uh, my slate piece, um, which was written um, right after the oral argument, gives a shout out to Justice Sotomayor because she saw it, and, and she doesn't write in, in that. Uh, case because you know she's more uh, junior, she doesn't get the assignment even in dissent. Justice Ginsburg basically writes the dissent and um, saying we should go even further. And, and there's another dissent on the right from the conservative justices, and in the middle, there's um, John Roberts saying, "Well, the mandate's okay as a tax rule, but, um, but some other things go too far. And um, so I'm not, I don't even think she writes in, in, at all, but wow. She was important, you know, maybe the nail that, you know, that saved the kingdom, but for Sonia Sotomayor, seeing that that day, and she's, she's good at oral argument. she's, some people say, well, she's, you know, she leans forward, Justice Thomas leans back, she leans forward, she has lots and lots of questions at at oral argument, um, um, and but never has her was her participation in oral argument more consequential than that. Um, very famously, she leaned forward in oral argument in some cases involving Puerto Rico. Um, she's a Puerto Rican ancestry. Uh, uh, Puerto Rico is a special place, um, you know, for um, her in her, in her heart. Um, in, in her soul, um, and people had commented on how much she maybe even dominated oral argument in some cases involving Puerto Rico, because she knows her stuff, Puerto Rican bankruptcy and, and, and other things. Um, but, um, but her performance in Sibelius at oral argument was very impressive, in my view, and maybe very consequential. So um, role model, yes, um, good oral um, uh, 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 questioner, Yes, and then I'll tell you the two opinions of hers that I like least.
0: You know, you were talking about uh, role mo- serving as a role model on the on the court, um, and how that matters, and it matters with the presidency too. Maybe a little off the subject, but the uh, the image that I have in my mind that uh, cements that for me is a picture by uh, the great uh, White House photographer Pete Souza. Many of you will remember of President Obama uh, leaning over with a a little African-American boy uh, feeling his hair. And, Um, you know, the unspoken, you know, image there is that, uh, you know, he's just like me, and he's the president. um,
1: So, yes, she is the Barack Obama of the Supreme Court. I think, you know, that would not be an unfair comparison. Um, uh, And uh, they both grew up in the margins at the margins of society, and make it all the way to the top. And this is why this whole Ivy League thing, the the new schoolocracy, is double-edged. Because on the one hand, I understand lots of our audience saying, way too many Harvard and Yale and Princeton people, this is ridiculous. On the other hand, but for places like the Harvard Law School, Barack Obama wouldn't be president of the United States. He's the first African-American president of the Harvard uh, law Review, and and that really credentials him. Time Magazine writes a story about that. Um, that's um, uh, a publisher sees that, uh, a literary agency sees that, and says, you know, maybe you could actually write a book about this, and and that becomes the contract for uh, Obama's book, Dreams from My Father. Um, uh, and and before being, becoming president, of the Harvard Law Review, he was Larry Tribe's research assistant. So good for Larry Tribe to see. Um, Barack Obama um, and his promise and before that he um, was a transfer student at at Columbia uh, University undergrad so good for Columbia and uh, um, so um, uh, um, and before that Occidental College so good for Occidental College um, which took him initially out of high school And, and, um, and but for Princeton giving Sonia Sotomayor a scholarship and then Yale Law School she doesn't um, uh, sort of rise uh, to the same extent because she doesn't have those those credentials because she's not to the manner born. So now I'm get, now going to identify two of my least favorite. And actually both of them uh, really have the vices of Justice Sotomayor's virtues. She, she is playing a particular role as a role model going beyond often the, the narrow facts of a case to try to to make a broader statement about her vision of justice. Um, and, and maybe that's a sensible strategy for her in that she's likely to be in the minority in most of the um, closely uh, contested, high-stakes, uh, um, politically-charged cases. Um, and, and she's likely to be that for, uh, in the minority for the rest of her life because there's a six justice conservative majority that's going to be in place for a while and it could have been different, but it won't be at least for a good long while. And when it changes, that's going to be toward the end of her uh, tenure in the court if it does change. So, um, we talked about how she sees herself very much as um, a product of affirmative action. Um, that's part of her biography, that's her, part of her autobiography. And one case uh, that was all about affirmative action. Where I actually uh, don't particularly love um, her opinion. It was a dissenting opinion. The case is called Shooty versus BAM. It comes out of Michigan in 2014. BAM is an acronym. We don't need to worry about what it stands for. But basically, here are the facts In 2003, the Supreme Court uh, analyzed uh, two affirmative action programs out of the University of Michigan, one for undergraduate and one for the law school. And in a split decision, the court said, affirmative action, racial preferences for underrepresented racial groups is permissible if it's used in a narrow and tailored way, a kind of set of plus factors um, in order to achieve uh, certain kinds of educational diversities. The Supreme Court upheld the use of in effect, racial preference is a racial plus factor given to certain minorities, especially African Americans, but, but maybe also Hispanics and other under, historically underrepresented racial groups. And the Supreme Court said the University of Michigan can do that in certain situations. That was 2003. Now, the voters of Michigan had um, a, a different um, a thought, and they adopted a state constitutional amendment, the voters of Michigan did, saying unless actually affirmative action of some sort is required, let's say, as a remedy for actual violations of um, uh, racial minority rights in certain contexts, except when it's required by the Constitution, um, uh, basically we forbid um, this kind of racial preference in
0: Michigan. You mean required by the federal constitution, correct? Or do you mean required by the Michigan Um, state constitution? Yes,
1: yes, no, because this was actually an amendment to the Michigan constitution. So um, except in situations where, in in effect, um, it's required by some court order or something like that um, to conform with um, federal constitutional mandates, we don't want to have racial preferences in Michigan uh, above and beyond what's absolutely required. And um, the Supreme Court, by a 6-2 to vote, said, that's fine. Um, Justice Kagan didn't participate in the case. Um, Justice Breyer, uh, a liberal, said, that's up to the people of Michigan to decide. Um, But Justice Sotomayor, in a a scathing dissent, uh, a very um, uh, energetic uh, dissent, Passionately defending affirmative action, uh, basically said that this was unconstitutional for the voters of Michigan to do that. Now, from a legal point of view, I think that's a real. She was joined by uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think that's a stretch um, to say that affirmative action is kind of constitutionally required in all sorts of situations. It might be permissible. Um, but I, I don't think, actually, she, uh, that Justice Sotomayor made a, a case, a strong, a compelling case to me, at least, that the, the text and history of the Reconstruction Amendments uh, demand this kind of um, affirmative action wherever possible. There are a few cases that that are um, that were around, but none of those cases was remotely close, in my view, to the Shooty case. There were three cases, two from the sixties um, and one from nineteen eighty-two, one uh, a case called Reetman versus Mulkey, another one Hunter versus Erickson, and another one out of Seattle. And Reetman and Hunter were situations that involved basically residential segregation and housing discrimination. Basically, what had happened is localities had basically said it's illegal for private homeowners to discriminate um on racial grounds and selling their homes. And the people of California passed a kind of a state constitutional amendment preempting all of that. Um, uh, But in those cases... The argument was you're making it harder for people who are actually victims of a certain kind of discrimination, admittedly private discrimination, but victims of a certain kind of discrimination to get redress because now they can't get a local ordinance the way all sorts of other people can get local ordinances on various things. And they can't even get a state statute. They have to, in effect, change the state constitution. And so this was an entrenchment, the argument went, by the Supreme Court, of um, residential segregation and um uh, and it was making it difficult for victims of certain kinds of race discrimination to get redress. And then there was another case out of Seattle in which, again, um, the, the, the people of the state made it harder uh, to uh, do um, uh, busing um, to achieve racial integration. They basically said, unless busing is absolutely required by the Constitution, federal Constitution, we don't want to do any more than is required. Um, but there again, you're dealing with an, a situation in which um, some people are saying, well, you need busing in order to, to remedy um, kind of um, uh, r- r- racial um, imbalances and, um, and um, uh, based on past discrimination. None of those cases said you have to do racial preferences. Um, so And racial preferences are really different, and they're kind of very controversial in, in, in America. And and they're permissible. That's what Grutter and Gratz say. You can do it in certain narrow cir- circumstances, but Justice S- 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 Sotomayor says, you have to do it. Um, it has to be a- available in a wide range of situations. Now, John Roberts, chief justice who doesn't like affirmative action, doesn't like what what he would call reverse discrimination, racial preferences, wrote a concurring opinion just to respond to Justice Sotomayor. The main opinion was written by Justice Kennedy, and, and it's not his style to go after dissenters. Um, he, um, but, but Justice Roberts wrote a separate opinion. I'm just going to read it to you. It's just a few paragraphs. The dissent, that's Justice Sotomayor's dissent, devotes 11 pages to expounding its own policy preferences in favor of taking race into account in college admissions, while nonetheless concluding that, quote, it does not mean to suggest that the virtues of adopting race-sensitive admissions policies should inform legal questions before the court, unquote. The dissent concedes that the governing boards of the state's various universities could have implemented a policy making it illegal to discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual on the basis of race. So, so the universities could have done that. On the dissent's view, if the governing boards conclude that drawing racial distinctions in University of Michigan is undesirable or counterproductive, they are permissibly exercising their policymaking authority. But others who might reach the same conclusion, that's the voters in Michigan, are failing to take race seriously. The dissent states that, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race, unquote. This is um, a riff on um, a statement that the Chief Justice had, had made. In an earlier case, you know, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, saying no more affirmative action. And and in response, Justice Sotomayor in this case is kind of rhetorically um, uh, countering the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race. Okay, back to uh, Roberts. And it urges that race matters because the slights, the silent judgments that reinforce that most crippling of thoughts I do not belong here. But it is not, says Roberts, out of touch with reality to conclude that racial preferences may themselves have the debilitating effect of reinforcing precisely that doubt, and if so, that the preferences do more harm than good. To disagree with the dissent's views on the costs and benefits of racial preferences is not to, quote, wish away rather than confront, unquote, racial equality. He's quoting... Um, uh, Sotomayor, people can disagree in good faith on this issue, but it similarly does more harm than good to question the openness and candor of those on either side of the debate. Um, so on the law, I really don't think the cases supported um, Justice as Sotomayor, um, that you have to do racial preferences to the nth degree, and that the voters actually have to allow racial preferences. The voters of Michigan, at the state, at the at the university level, or the town level, or even at the state legislative level, they can say no. We're taking that off the table. Um, and the cases um, that um, uh, that limited basically state constitutional uh, lawmaking. Um, did not involve affirmative action. Um, they involved discrimination of various sorts um, against um, um, and, uh, in situations involving typically racial segre- segregation. Um, and I don't think that, that text or history of the Constitution really supports Justice Sotomayor's view. I understand she's passionately defending her view of affirmative action, and we talked about that. That's, that's, that's pretty central to her identity. I will say one other thing, that to the extent that Um, just, we we judge the thing politically rather than legally, her opinion, because I think legally she's not on solid ground. I'm with Justice Breyer, who basically says this is up to the people of Michigan to decide. Justice Sotomayor in Michigan is kind of constitutionalizing the idea of um, affirmative action. That's going to alienate a bunch of, of uh, voters um, in the middle. I say that as someone who was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. actually spent um, portions of my summer in Bayview, Michigan, um, and Michigan was close this time around. And it was, and we lost it. We Democrats lost it in 2016, and I think um, constitutionalizing a super leftist vision of um, uh, affirmative action across the board, that will mean you're not going to have Democratic presidents because they're going to lose Michigan, and if you don't have Democratic presidents, you're not going you, to be replaced by a, a Democrat long-term. It's about winning the presidency in part, which means actually winning Michigan, which means not telling the voters of Michigan that what they think, think basically it doesn't matter because you're going to overrule them. I think that's politically mistaken.
0: You know, um your your point about um this riff that uh that she takes on uh a quote from an earlier decision by Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, um that seems to be at the heart of what Roberts is writing here. There are two points where he's saying don't make it personal. Um one where she quotes him, you know, and riffs on him doesn't quote him but riffs on him, and the other where he says you know, it does more harm harm than good to question the openness and candor of those on either side of the debate.
1: Yeah, um, and he's a little touchy on this, but justices do that in the back and forth. Um, there's sometimes in law school we call these the footnote wars or something. So, so the, the uh, law involves um, uh, rhetoric um, as well as uh, logic, um, and uh, and Justice Chief Justice Roberts gives as good as he gets, um, and uh, so. But but on this one, I thought she went. To a bit too far, but you can see it's personal for her. It, it is, um, and for reasons that we talked about. Now, the other case I'm going to talk about just at less length, um, it's, that one's a little personal for me. It's, added, uh, it's from 2016. It's a case called Utah versus Streif, and the case was actually all about a, a very narrow question about the exclusionary rule. Basically, there was a drug house. Um, you know where, where drugs were being sold. Someone was seen leaving it. The cops basically demand that um, he 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 um, uh, uh, talk to the cops, um, and they probably were a little. Um, they um, were um, didn't um, have proper authority to sort of stop him in that way. Um, uh, the court, at least the court conceded that they didn't, um, that that was just the um, assumed basis of the record. But um, immediately after that, they were able to find, they found that there was a warrant that he, an outstanding warrant. And um, and so the question was, um, look, the initial stop was, um, the, the, by assumption, um, improper. But they did find, a, but they did have a warrant. And once they have the warrant, Um, doesn't that cure whatever um, earlier violation there was and then they they found drugs on the guy? Um, um, And should we exclude them given that they did find and have a valid um, warrant? And so the only issue really is the exclusionary rule. Our audience will know. I think the exclusionary rule is made up. It shouldn't be expanded. It should be restricted. The precedents have moved in the direction of restriction. um, And... Uh, Writing for a court majority, Justice Thomas actually says here, because they did actually in the end have a a warrant, um, we shouldn't um, exclude the evidence. And she turns it into a big, a a larger debate. um, And um, so here's how she begins. The court today holds the discovery of a warrant will forgive a police officer's violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. No, it doesn't. It's not about forgiving a violation. It's about the exclusionary rule. You still might be able, for example, to sue them in damages. This is just about the exclusionary rule, Justice uh, uh, Sotomayor. She says, don't be sued by the opinion's technical language. This case allows the police to stop you on the street, demand your identification, check it for outstanding warrants, even if you're doing nothing wrong. No, it doesn't. Justice Sotomayor it's not about what the cops are allowed to do it's not a case about the rights uh, uh, as defined by the 4th amendment the court brackets that issue it's only about the exclusionary rule okay um, because the 4th amendment should prohibit not permit such misconduct she says I dissent it's not about the, the misconduct it's about exclusion just to repeat. And it doesn't hurt anyone unless they find drugs on you or um, a bloody knife or something else that shows that you're guilty as all get out. That's what it's about. It's about people, you know, on whom they find reliable evidence of guilt. It's only about the exclusionary rule. So I didn't like it that she actually, once again, turned it into something that it wasn't about. Later, she talks about, she brings race in. Now, um, and she, she quotes um, some pop pieces on, on, on race. And um, so, uh, again, you could say, well, she's a role model and she's trying to, to um, talk about the broader issues. Or you could say, oh, she's grandstanding a bit. Um, the case at hand was out of Utah and it was white people. <laughs> it didn't really involve race. Um, now, it's true the case at hand, I think it just involved um, some, some drugs. But on her view, oh, she would have said we should exclude the evidence even if it was a smoking gun um, um, or a bloody knife, uh, evidence of a violent crime. And if she's going to play the race card, I'm going to say, okay, well, let's also play the race and the sex card. Victims of crime are themselves often poor, they're often black um, or brown, they're often women. Um, So, I don't like the exclusionary rule. I don't think it's constitutionally required. And actually, um, uh, um, it, 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 it's not actually a great way of doing social justice, truth be told. Um, but um, uh, again, maybe that's a case that's kind of personal to me because I'm such a fierce critic of the exclusionary rule. And one of the things I frankly like about Justice Thomas, um, who is very similar in, you see, in his biography to Justice Sotomayor, um, uh, person of color um, uh, at the bottom of the social order um, at the beginning of their lives, and then they they uh, rise up through their own hard work and, and 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 character. They're Yale Law School graduates. Um, and and so you're seeing, oh, two people whose profiles are somewhat similar. They may have different views. Justice Thomas is an originalist. Justice Sotomayor is not. Justice Thomas is increasingly skeptical of the exclusionary rule. Justice Sotomayor. Apparently likes the exclusionary rule quite a lot and would would um, and not cut it back, um, um, but but I per, I'm basically with Justice Thomas on this, so that's another case of Justice Sotomayor's that I do not love. Utah versus Streef twenty sixteen.
0: Now you mentioned that uh, she may well spend the rest of her career or much of the rest of her career uh, in dissent. Um, now she's not the first justice to uh, be in that role. Um, you've mentioned on our previous podcast, the justice Harlan, the great dissenter and so forth as as someone who, uh, has a legacy that is, uh, valuable, you know, probably, you know, treasured. Um, so w- if one has to spend one's career in dissent, what sort of approach do you think, uh, such a justice might take to, um, you know, to to make it so that that's a a life a career worth worth uh, spending. Uh, well,
1: Justice Harlan was compelling because he actually set out really good legal arguments that, in the end, prevailed. Like in, as in Plessy versus Ferguson, um, he also sometimes prevailed because there was intervening not a change of judicial heart, um, but um, Uh, kind of political action. Um, He uh, said an income tax is perfectly constitutional. He prevailed not because the Supreme Court changed his mind, but because the people amended the Constitution. Um, So sometimes a dissent could be an appeal to the broader political community. Um, uh, Justice Ginsburg famously dissented in a case involving Lily Ledbetter. That was a case actually about a statute, and she in effect said... um, um, we should make it easier for people to to prove discrimina- uh, employment discrimination and recover. And Congress agreed with her and actually modified the statute. So maybe what Justice um, uh, Sotomayor sometimes playing for playing to is um, um, uh, a popular audience, a um, uh, political audience, rather than to a future court. Um, in uh, Utah versus Streif. She cites actually Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow. She cites Tennessee Coates, between the world and me, um, and and so maybe she's just making a, a broader political appeal, and 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 there's a place for that. Um, but but what I liked about Justice Harlan in particular was he was right on the law. In the civil rights cases of eighteen eighty three, he was right on the law in Plessy versus Ferguson. He was right on the law about incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states, and all, and and, um, and Plessy was in effect overruled by uh, Brown and Loving versus Virginia. So the court said, yes, you were right about the law. Equal means equal, um, and um, when it came to incorporation of the Bill of Rights, plying the Bill of Rights against the states. The, court, the Warren Court, led by Hugo Black, said, yes, you were right. It really does, um, uh, th- th- when, the, when the Constitution says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the United States, that really does mean what we call the Bill of Rights. Um, he didn't prevail yet in court on the, in his dissent on the Civil Rights Case of 1883, but I think he was right about all those things. And in one of his other major, um, in, in Lochner, he dissents in the court court. Um, uh, um, comes around to his point of view. In his dissent in the income tax cases, that's the one case where the court didn't change its mind quite, but the American people um, backed Harlan and said, you're right, we amend the Constitution
0: so that an income tax is valid. I mean, Justice Thomas has spent a lot of his career in dissent, um, uh, and he's, he's made legal arguments. Um, and are you saying that Justice Sotomayor is not really making... Um, you know, persuasive legal arguments in the Senate and relying more on well, trying to change the playing field uh, by encouraging the legislature to act or the voters.
1: Well, in Utah versus Streif, I, I I found um, uh, her. Uh, I think in both cases, I, I didn't find her legal arguments. Uh, uh, compelling, though. Justice Thomas, yeah, sometimes he descends, sometimes he actually flows new ideas in a concurrence. It's easier for him, because the wind's at his back, because you know, he's a conservative on a conservative court. So the better analogy, um, Andy, or comparison, would be to my other hero, um, uh, that, whom I've mentioned before, Hugo Black. Hugo Black begins often in dissent, um, when Felix Frankfur- when he gets on the court, Felix Frankfurter is still kind of in the middle of the court, and Black is often losing to Frankfurter. And then when Frankfurter finally leaves, the Warren court kicks into high gear, and in a whole bunch of cases, Black's dissents become majority opinions. I'll give you three or four examples. Um, and, but Black laid a better foundation because his dissents actually had a stronger constitutional basis. So let me give you three or four examples. Black says in the 1940s, beginning in a case called Betts versus Brady, I think 41 or 42, um, and then um, ultimately in a, a landmark decision, uh, uh, in, um, uh, it's a dissent um, in Betts versus Brady. And, um, uh, and uh, uh, there, there's a later um, uh, a set of dissents in the case called Adamson versus California in 1947, um, but he only has four votes in Adamson for the idea that the Bill of Rights applies against the states. So he comes close in, in the 1940s. He only has four votes. Remember, he comes on to the court in the late 30s. And by 47, he's got four votes for this, but not five. But when Felix Frankfurter finally leaves in 63, Black now, and is replaced by Abe Fortas, Black now has five votes, and the Warren Court basically adopts his ideas that the Bill of Rights applies against the states. There's another case in the 40s, which the Supreme Court rejects the idea that the Constitution is about one person, one vote. Frankfurter is in the majority. Black is in dissent. But when Frankfurter leaves, eventually the court comes around, the Warren Court, one person, one vote. Another case um, a set of cases uh, where he's in dissent. Um, he, he, he's um, championing free speech and free press in, in various cases, but sometimes he loses um, cases involving um, the Communist Party. Um, but um, when Frankfurter finally leaves, once again, the, the Warren court tends to embrace um, Black's uh, broader vision. Um, so um, Hugo Black um, um, was... A defining an agenda at the beginning of his time on the court that would later become majority opinions for the Warren Court. Now, but what was his model? Text and history, originalism, um, spending his time actually really studying the Constitution with care. Um, and, and at the end of the day, in, um, my view, and this is going to be a perfect segue before talking about justice, Kagan is, the Constitution says it's the supreme law of the land, so it should trump a precedent. It says equal, and that means that if Plessy isn't taking equally seriously, we have to overrule Plessy. Um, It says free speech, and if we're not taking that seriously, we better do so. It says, basically, states have to abide by fundamental rights, including things in the Bill of Rights, and regardless of what the presidents say, we have to do that. The Warren Court, led by Hugo Black, the end of the Warren Court, especially 63 to 69, is basically overturning all sorts of precedents in the name of the Constitution itself, and Black is spending his early years studying the Constitution itself, and truthfully, I'm not sure Justice Sotomayor is, I do think Justice, Th- I'm not sure if it's Justice Breyer is. Um, he's you know, spending his summers um, maybe reading great French literature or something like that. Justice Thomas is. And even though I don't always agree with Justice Thomas, I think Justice Thomas is spending his summers um, trying to read history. Justice Scalia wasn't. Um, I liked Justice Alito's opinion in City Chicago versus McDonald because it was an originalist decision that actually s- uh, suggested to me that Justice Alito, who doesn't join the court as an originalist, is trying to actually bone up a bit and learn some history in order to get it right as a justice.
0: You said this was a, a good segue to uh, begin to speak about Justice Kagan. Tell us why you believe that. I really
1: love Justice Kagan. We're, we've been friends for a very long time. She was a, a, a law professor before she and be, became a justice. Um, uh, in between, she was Solicitor General of the United States. Um, uh, she was Dean of the Harvard Law School. And I, I remember, actually, some um, I very fond memories of... of um, walking with her around the campus of the Harvard Law School and giving her suggestions about uh, whom she might want to um, bring on to the Harvard Law School faculty um, uh, and uh, um, and she really did a brilliant job as Dean of the uh, of the Harvard Law School, improving and diversifying intellectually the Harvard Law School faculty. Um, I don't think I'm talking out of school too much, when I say one person that I said you should definitely hire um, is Philip Bobbitt, and she said, I agree with you. She wasn't quite, that never quite happened, but not, not, not because Justice Kagan, you know, didn't um, see um, uh, uh, Sir Philip's um, great, uh, um, uh, you know, towering um, accomplishments. Um, uh, I once actually um, uh, had a fun conversation um, with Elena's, um, but I'm gonna, but the, but the, I adore her, but the problem is she's not paying attention to the text of the Constitution. She's championing press too, too much. So I'm gonna come back to that just a second, but just tell our audience one um, fun story. You and I offline were talking about um, certain reflexive French verbs like se brosser les dents, you know, to brush oneself the teeth. Um, and the French actually, Um, um, When um, have a reflexive uh, se marier avec, to um, marry oneself with. Um, So uh, when I met um, Justice um, uh, uh, Kagan's brother, Irving Kagan, who's a, a Yale College graduate, he actually came to hear me speak at the New York Historical Society once and brought some of his students and we started talking and I said, Oh, I know who you are. Uh, um, when he introduced himself, he says, I think I know your sister. And he nodded, you know, kind of. He said, Yeah, you, you probably do. I said, You know, she married one of my best friends. And he looked at me very quizzically. He said, I don't think so. Um, and I said no. She really did because she presided at the marriage ceremony of my friend Philip Bobbitt and uh, and his bride Maya. She, you know, because um, the 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 the, um, the 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 preacher, the pastor, marries you know the, the 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 couple, and actually Elena Kagan at the Supreme Court did actually preside over Philip's. Um, um, wedding ceremony, so, so um, Elena did, really did marry Philip in a certain way. Um, so I really adore um, Elena. As I said, we've been friends for a long time. I encouraged her long ago um, to, um, that she should be delighted when, um, when uh, President Obama picked her to be Solicitor General Fine, but she didn't get to pick her assistant. Obama said, uh, I want your assistant to be Neil Katyal. And she didn't know who Neil Katyal was. Um, and I knew them both. And I actually called her up and I said, listen, you don't know Neil, but you know me. And I know Neil. And he's going to be the best assistant you've ever had. You know, Trust me on that. You're going to love him. And of course she did because Neil is lovable. And Neil's going to come on um, as a guest for our podcast. We keep um, promising that. And that, that will happen. Um, so um, what's Elena's best decision? Um, it's the uh, one in her very first term. Um, she, as an academic, was an expert on free speech law and also on presidential power. Um, but this, in her first term, she wrote this brilliant dissent in a case involving public financing um, of campaigns. It was out of Arizona. She lost. It was five to four. Uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote for a majority. Um, and he's very impressive, and he was at the top of his game, and she was only in her first year on the court, and I thought she outdueled him. Um, and in a nutshell, what Arizona did, it had a public finance law that said, um, if you want to get public financing, you, know, you have to sort of opt out of private financing, and you just have to um, uh, take um, the, the, the public money. Fine, but, but you don't have to. You can spend your own money or the money that you raise from, from private donations and you can opt out of the system. Fine. But the Arizona law went on to say if actually um, the privately financed candidate spends an awful lot of money, then um, the uh, person who chooses the, the public financing option will get a little bit more money than otherwise um, um uh, because you know to 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 keep it fair, um, and the court said that 's wrong that 's penalizing people for raising and spending money by giving more public money to their opponent and Elena says no it 's not. your precedents themselves say basically that the the proper response to speech isn't trying to shut it down it's it's more speech you're not you're not um Taking anything away from a candidate who wants to spend as much money as he or she wants, you're just giving a little bit more money and facilitating a little bit more speech of the other f- side. And and uh, with a, an analysis of the proper baselines, there's nothing wrong with that. I thought she was right about that. And she took you know some of the words of earlier precedents and sh- and showed that if you take seriously the logic of Citizens United and all the rest, nothing wrong with this Arizona public finance law, and that was her first term on the court, and I thought that's as good an opinion ever written by a rookie justice. You remember, I thought that Breyer wrote a great opinion in his rookie year, but this was um, more recent than that. So that's my favorite Kagan opinion. What I don't love are basic, is basically Justice Kagan's um, uh, um, a recent jurisprudential turn. Seems to try to say precedent is everything and use precedent for all purposes, um, and I think there are at least two problems with that. One, um, precedent is one tool in the um, uh, in the toolkit. It's one color in your set of colored pencils, but it can't be the only tool, the only color. You know, it can't be as if you you can only use uh, a blue crayon or something to. Um, uh, And so that's one problem, is an over-reliance on precedent. But relatedly, at the end of the day, if a precedent is wrong, wrong meaning inconsistent with what the Constitution really says, well, the Constitution says it's the supreme law of the land and not precedent. And you can say, well, you, that's circular. You're, you're appealing to the Constitution to um, establish the supremacy of the Constitution itself. I say, yeah, I am, because of the Supremacy Clause. But someone would say, yes, but again, you, that's just a, begging the question that's circular, because why are you starting with the Constitution rather than the precedents? I say, fine. Let's start with the precedents, Elena. The precedents themselves say at the end of the day that the Constitution is supreme over the precedents themselves. Um, here are two landmark precedents, for example, that overruled earlier ones just because they were wrong. One is called West Virginia v. Barnett. You're a First Amendment person. That's one of the most important First Amendment cases of all time. It's the Flag Salute case, and it overrules an earlier case simply called Gobitis simply because it's wrong. Here's another case that every first-year law student learns. It's a case called Erie v. Tompkins. It overrules 100 years in effect of precedent merely because the precedence was wrong. I can identify many other cases where the Supreme Court itself has overturned itself simply because it's wrong. Now, yes, Elena, it's true. In Casey, the court seemed... uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the case about abortion, the court seemed to say something else, but it cited no precedence, actually, uh, Elena. And until you came along... No Supreme Court majority had ever actually cited that part of Casey, and you're trying to revive that part of Casey, in part because of Roe versus Wade. And, um, and, um, and I think that's fundamentally wrong. The Constitution doesn't say that, and the precedents until you came along didn't say that. Um, and at the end of the day, actually, even though I know what you're up to, you're, it's all about Roe versus Wade... You're going to live to regret this, Elena, because um, uh, you're, on, you're on the minority in the court and you're going to lose um, uh, over the next few years um, in, in various contexts, including the abortion context, and then the precedents will be against you and you will have no place to go. Because once the precedents are against you, oh, if you're a precedent person, you know what can you say? Now, Elena, if you instead you followed the example of Hugo Black, or John Marshall Harlan the Elder, and boned up on the Constitution, followed Justice Thomas, and actually developed competences other than precedential expertise, you could say, with Hugo Black, I know the precedents against me. I know two precedents are against me. I know three precedents are against me. It doesn't matter, because at the end of the day, I'm standing on the text and history and structure of the Constitution. And you'll be able to fight again and again and again for the right position. But you won't be able to do that unless you really master the text and history and structure of the Constitution. And that's what you should be spending your summers doing, as Black did long ago, as Thomas is doing even today. And maybe Alito is beginning to do that, too, at least sometimes. Um, so, and, and Justice Sotomayor isn't quite, and Justice Breyer isn't quite. Um, and
0: it's a mistake for you not to be doing that. What do you think Justice Kagan would say in response if, uh, if you asked I don't her, know. her that? Um, I think she
1: would say, listen, Nikhil, we're friends, but I have a different view of um, how to think about constitutional law. Her vision of the centrality of precedent is visible even in her undergraduate work at Princeton, since we're talking about um, people's um, um, backgrounds. Even before she ended up at the Harvard Law School, Um, She had a certain vision of what law was, and it was precedent-based. As I said, I think it's a mistake. I think the precedents themselves don't even say that. Um, And we already talked earlier about um, one decision, her maybe biggest majority decision, where um, I think um, she and the Supreme Court unanimously said Genuinely embarrassing things. It was a case about faithless electors. We talked about it in our second podcast episode, I think, Um, um Here's why you can't, um, it's, it's improper to, uh, for a state to actually um, cr- uh, punish an elector uh, uh, in the electoral college system who votes contrary to Um, how he was pledged to vote. And she said, that's perfectly okay. Elena, it says elector. An elector is a person who makes an election, who makes a choice. He gets to choose. That's the whole point. (laughs) Elena, elsewhere in the Constitution, voters are described as electors, and they get to choose. Elena, you said, well, he's being appointed, and so if the legislature can appoint him, the legislature can tell him what to do. I said, Elena, you were appointed by the President and the Senate, and they don't get to tell you what to do once you, you've been appointed. That can't be right. Oh, and Elena, it says ballot. And ballot at the time, if you take seriously the words of the Constitution, that meant secret ballot. You're not even supposed to know how they voted, so how would it ever be proper to punish them you know, for voting because it's a secret ballot. They're electors, and they cast a secret ballot. Uh, and by the way, it makes no sense because... Actually, um, suppose someone dies between the time uh, that the uh, uh, election takes place, uh, election day, and the electoral college meets. And I know you got this footnote eight saying, "Well, in a death situation, maybe that would be different, and we don't decide that, you know." Uh, but Elena, it's not just limited to death. Suppose he gets struck by lightning, and you, and he's in a coma, and you know he's going to die in a few days, but he's not dead yet. Um, it's, suppose it's, it's not a coma situation. Suppose actually, in between election day and the meeting, of the electoral college. Um, we now have proof positive that he's a foreign agent uh, a spy for the for Russia or something like that um, um The problem is created because you're voting um the electors are meeting after um the uh um uh, uh you know weeks after. The, the, the ordinary voters have, have weighed in and, and there might be an important change of circumstance. The voters themselves might want the elector to, to to vote differently. And ordinarily you're not gonna you don't need this law to prevent faithless electors. Candidates will carefully pick electors who are gonna who are be gonna be faithful to them. So um now, why did I pick that case in particular? Because there weren't a lot of precedents on that issue. Um, so you actually, in order to get it right, you need to be able to understand the text of the Constitution, its history, its structure, you know, um, uh, histories of implementation. I know this backwards and forwards and sideways because I'm an expert on the Electoral College. She doesn't. The rest of the justices don't. And I think it was a bad decision um, that actually could end up one day... Um, really being um, disastrous. And that's what I argued way back when in our second um, uh, podcast episode on Bullets Dodged. But look, I could be wrong on all this stuff, but I'm I'm consistently wrong. I've got a vision. Uh, It actually has a certain coherence. Um, And um, here's my claim, Elena, Uh, um, that um, your Vision will only succeed in the long run if you connect it to the Constitution itself. Otherwise, it will just um, wash away. You're you're unlikely to be in the majority, unfortunately, for much of the time, Um, uh, 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 just because you're you're in the minority on, on the court right now, and I don't see that changing immediately. But there have been justices in the past that were in the minority, and they ended up having the last laugh But they did so because they actually studied the Constitution and channeled it um, persuasively as interpreters. And they include John Marshall Harlan, the elder, in cases like Plessy and Lochner uh, and um, a Pollock versus New York income tax case. And I hope they eventually will prevail. Uh, Harlan will prevail um, in his dissent in the Civil Rights Case of 1883, um, and and Hugo Black. And they prevailed because they were textualists, originalists of a certain sort, who actually um, made compelling arguments about what the Constitution really means. And by the way, you don't even need to be a justice to do that. So I'm practicing what I preach. What I do um, is um, study the Constitution and write books about it. And in a 100 years... Um, the, those books, I hope, will still last because the Constitution says what it says and means what it means. Um, and the precedents, uh, precedents may come and precedents may go um, And, and um, to, to, to borrow from Simon and Garfunkel and never change your point of view.
0: Okay, so that's um, three more justices down and three more to go. Um, And uh, this was a lengthy discussion, but very interesting, Um, covered a a wide range. You know, we did a lot of law today, which I think is good. Um, And uh, next time, the Trump justices.